0: there is a capability in Gaza to build very significant underground uh, structures and assets that Israel will never be able to reach.
1: The Electronic Intifada.
2: The Electronic Intifada.
1: The Electronic Intifada. Intifada.
2: This is the Electronic Intifada Podcast. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman.
1: And I'm Asa Winstanley.
2: I'm Nora Barrows Friedman with ASO and Stanley, and this is the Electronic Intifada podcast. Um, We are gathered uh, today to talk about what's uh, been happening the last few days on the ground in Gaza, the West Bank, and historic Palestine. Today we're recording on May 20th, um, and we're joined by Ali Abunima, our executive director, and John Elmer, who's a researcher, and my co-host at The Brief Podcast. Um, John and Ali, thanks for being with us today.
0: Thank you for having me. Thanks for having me back, Nora.
2: <laughs> <laughs> um Ali, let's begin uh, with you. let's Let's talk about the last few days, the last few nights of attacks. Um, over two hundred and thirty Palestinians have been killed in um, hundreds of airstrikes by Israel. Um, give us your sense of what's been happening, and um, yeah, just just your observations over the last few days.
0: Yeah, well, as we're speaking, there's a report that a ceasefire is inima, imminent, uh, perhaps within a day or within hours or two days. I think it can't come soon enough for people in Gaza who have been under horrific uh, bombardment for now um, 10 days. Uh, a bombardment which has targeted Uh, specifically targeted civilians. There have been massacres as uh, we reported at the electronic intifada, 14 families have been essentially wiped out in Gaza. Um, The vast majority of the dead are um, civilians. Um, And uh, more than 1700 people have been injured and there has been systematic Israeli targeting of civilian infrastructure, um, high-rise residential buildings, private homes, businesses, banks, clinics, um, just, you know, everything that is essential to life. And that is not an accident, that is not so-called collateral damage, it is the Israeli strategy, uh, the so-called dahiya doctrine that they developed Uh, or first rolled out, let's say, on Lebanon in 2006 when they deliberately destroyed the southern suburb of Beirut. And the logic is that, you know, we're going to inflict so much pain and suffering on the population at large that no one will ever dare resist us again, uh, or at least for a very long time. And uh, that is because, I mean, I think... Cruelty has always been uh, the kind of doctrine of Zionism, the iron wall as Jabotinsky, the spiritual uh, father of the Likud party and of Benjamin Netanyahu's ideology and of Zionism generally. You know, you have to be cruel enough to the Arabs that they understand that there's no point fighting against uh, the Zionist uh, state. Um, But also, I think it's because uh, there are really no so-called military targets in Gaza. Uh, This is an asymmetrical conflict or battle. Uh, We're talking about a a, uh, 21st century military armed by the United States and the European Union on the one hand, and basically a guerrilla army, uh, a resistance movement on the other hand that doesn't have big stationary military targets, that doesn't have big military bases or you know, columns of tanks or warplanes. So um, the, that's why Israel, it's only strategy to try to sear into the consciousness of Palestinians that there's no point resisting is to attack uh, the civilian population, just as the United States did in the Vietnam War uh, just as uh, you know, all colonial regimes do—you inflict suffering on on the on the population in the hope of demoralizing them and getting them to turn away from resistance. Now, what I want to say about the ceasefire, if if and when it comes, is that what's significant is it will come with Israel having achieved nothing. Uh, except death and destruction. As I always say, if, uh, if winning a war means killing, uh, you know, massacring uh, men, women, and children, then Israel is always the winner and always the world champion. But if it means changing the strategic equation, if it means um, increasing the legitimacy of Zionism, if it means uh, defeating Palestinian resistance and and making Palestinians kneel and accept that they just have to live under Zionist rule, then Israel is always the loser and it has lost again. And the final sort of opening observation I'll make is that I think the Palestinian cause emerges from this horror and it is horror. uh, First of all, having paid a terribly high price in civilian lives, but one that clearly Palestinians in Palestine were willing to pay um, in the sense that any colonized people, you know, if you look at Algeria, a million and a half people died in that war to free the country from French rule uh, because once a colonized occupied people makes a decision to free itself that decision is really irrevocable and and they are prepared to pay a high price. And what we've seen here um, is that we also emerge with Palestinian consciousness enhanced, pan-Palestinian consciousness across historic Palestine. This is the first time in decades or perhaps ever that Israel is in a sense forced to confront Palestinians on three fronts at the same time Palestinians in Gaza resisting militarily, Palestinians in the West Bank resisting uh, against occupation forces, and Palestinians across uh, Israel within um, the 1948 boundaries of Israel resisting against the racist state uh, like never before. And the Israeli strategy for controlling the Palestinians has always been based on the colonial tactic of divide and rule, fragmentation. If, if Israel can deal with Gaza by itself, it can deal with the West Bank by itself, it can perhaps deal with the Palestinians within Israel by itself. But I think it's a, a, a significant change in the strategic equation if all Palestinians across Palestine are in revolt and in uh, active resistance at the same time.
2: Yeah, I mean the the mayor, the Israeli mayor of Lid, um, called for a. Na- it was he, he basically said it was a national emergency and and insisted that Netanyahu bring the military forces in um, to the city to quell Palestinian uprising. Um, I mean, ha- yeah, has has this? Um, I mean, this is really Israel's worst nightmare in in many ways, um, and it doesn't seem like the resistance. Uh,
0: Is is being quelled? Well, Israel made a strategic miscalculation, and this is against you know. Let's look at the regional political context. Less than a year ago, there was really a triumphalist uh, tone among in Israel and its allies in the region and the United States that the Palestinian cause was dead, that the Palestinian people were isolated, that it was a losing struggle, and that the and that Israel had succeeded in Imposing a reality on the Palestinians that they could do nothing about. And that's why we saw um, Arab regimes like uh, the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain and Morocco coming out into the open with their long standing relationships with Israel, uh, signing the so called Abraham Accords. And of course, all that was backed more or less openly by Saudi Arabia. And really, the only question was. When will Saudi Arabia officially join the party? Um, You know, is it going to be, you know, right away or, you know, in six months time? So there was this air of triumphalism and they celebrated their marriage to Israel over what they all thought was the dead body of the Palestinian cause. So this uh, revolt, this uprising, this uh, resistance is really a rude awakening for Israel, the United States and its clients in the region. And it really does change the strategic equation on a number of levels. And I think it it deals a severe blow to the trend of normalization. It reestablishes the Palestinian cause as really the central cause in the region. And it uh, explodes the fantasy that I think uh, many of the Arab regimes, but also the Americans, Europeans, and Israelis had, that the Palestinian, uh, the Palestinians can just be dealt with by so-called conflict management, a little bit of uh, economic aid and string them along with a, a fake peace process. But they really can't upset the strategic equation, which was about creating a uh, American-backed regional alliance to confront Iran and to you know, destroy any states in the region that could resist, uh, you know, US-Israeli hegemony. Yeah. And I think that, that we are really dealing with a new situation.
2: I wanna bring John into this. Uh, John, you lived in Gaza for many years uh, during the second intifada, and um, you've been researching the, um, you know, the, the equipment and technology of resistance factions, especially in Gaza. Um, can you give us a sense of, of what, you've been noticing in terms of the, you know, the, the rockets and, and technology and, um, and the, and the strategy of uh, resistance factions in Gaza.
3: Yeah. I mean, as far as the rockets go, there's more of them. They're going further. They're deadlier. They're being used more tactically effectively um, to go around the iron domes. Um, <clears throat> this is something that's been developing in Gaza for a long time. And it, it, it goes back to, Um, I mean, really, it goes back to the late 80s when Israel walled off the Gaza Strip in the first place during the first uh, so-called peace process, Um, but particularly since 2005, when the Israelis pulled out of Gaza and left um, Gazans with a ghetto, uh, an unlivable ghetto, according to the United Nations, but a piece of property, a piece of land, um, a, a base of operations, and they took advantage of that and have built uh, an indigenous production system for developing weaponry. They've um, dedicated considerable attention to taking what for 20 years before was like a series of armed groups and bringing them all under one banner in a joint operations room, not competing with each other, but working together. Um, You know, the 2014 war was all about Israel telling us that they had been fighting terror all these years, right? And that was the war 2014, where they said, no, we're fighting an army now. We've put together an army. Ahmed Jabri, who was the head of Qassam uh, at the time, um, was assassinated just before uh, ceasefire negotiations um, long-term ceasefire negotiations were taking place before the 2012 war. So the idea of ceasefires is, and the, and the resistance and the ability for a ceasefire to hold, one, an, another one of the developments that's happened is that um, Hamas's Politburo is in control of uh, Yahya Sinwar, who was a founding member of Hamas and was the leader of the prisoners in jail. He was released in the Shalit Exchange, Um, And he went to Gaza in 2016, I guess it was. And uh, he ran for leadership of the Politburo in Hamas and was elected. So the leadership in Hamas is in the Gaza Strip is a Qassam based leadership. It puts the primacy of the armed struggle in the movement in the top position of the Politburo. That's an important thing when it comes down to a ceasefire, because if we're talking about a ceasefire for like a week or two and then fighting again, if you're talking about a ceasefire that's going to hold, Israel needs to have legitimate authority, uh, accepted authority on the ground for the Palestinians. This idea of 30 years of collaborators who have no legitimacy, who, who only answer to Israel, those ceasefires have no meaning. But when you have a situation with a proper military leadership that's been built since the 1980s, um, we only see it every five years or whatever when this happens. Um, But this capacity is what forces Israel into these positions of, well, first of all, it forces them into the positions of massacres because they can't deal with the resistance face to face. So they massacre people. Like Shijia, right? It was They attempted to invade Shijia in 2014. They got like 100 meters, got smoked, stopped, turned around, and just laid the place to waste. So that's the dynamic that uh, Palestinians, these massacres are punitive, and they're also a symbol that they can't get at what they're trying to strike. The last war and the period in between, we were told so much about tunnels. The tunnels, they were going to come out of the tunnels and they were going to attack Uh, Israeli settlements, the Israelis went around the entire edge of the Gaza Strip poking holes, trying to find tunnels. Um, There's been nothing of that this time. The anti-tank missiles have kept the Israelis away from the border where they used to be for years and years and years. We used to always see the like associated press footage, right, with the Israelis standing beside their tanks on the border with Gaza doing like praying or sitting on the cannons and you could see tanks all around. Islamic Jihad released a video yesterday, a drone video, that showed that there was nobody anywhere near the borders in Gaza. I mean, you guys covered it as well as anybody. In the, mar- the great marches in Gaza, the soldiers would line up on those berms on the edge and just shoot into the, into the ghetto, killing people. Those berms are not manned right now, and there's nobody around um, the border of Gaza. And that kind of situation is... Forces Israel's hand. They don't have a way to achieve, in the like whatever neoliberal, you know, definitions of achieve a victory of a colonial war, um, and Hamas and Islamic Jihad can fire rockets for months and months and months. This is not; they're not in a rush. Uh, obviously, the carnage in Gaza is terrible, um, but the carnage doesn't. Make people weak need in Gaza. it does the exact opposite, and I think you guys have seen it all around the unity and the unity that came from um, you know I, Gaza was isolated. That was Israel's strategy. Isolate Gaza. when all that stuff happened at, the, at Al-Aqsa and all the Ramadan shenanigans that Israel was pulling off, and then once they actually got violent about it, people in the West Bank right asked. For a response, yeah. a unified response from the national movement, and they got it. And the same with '48. It's a big deal what happened in '48. Those, those, the seeds of those uprisings are those are strategic issues for Israel. They're not things that go away with a ceasefire.
1: all right I was I was talking about this last night on uh, uh, Five Pillars program, which is a British Muslim website, um, and. Uh, You know, I mean, it is just a reality that the Palestinian armed resistance in the Gaza Strip, its capabilities have become increasingly sophisticated since over the years. I mean, uh, we saw it in 2014. um, You know, you read Max Blumenthal's book, The 51 Day War, um, about the 2014 massacre, which um, to me was the definitive... Uh, book about it, about that war, um, and he gets into that. Like, what exactly you, you were talking about there, John? That um, the Israelis could not invade, you know, whereas it, you know during uh, the Second Intifada they were able to invade at least parts of the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, um, or re-invade. Um, they weren't. They weren't able to get. You know barely a foot into the God's strip, and they just had to pull out and as you said, just level entire neighborhoods vindictively flatten them to the ground, so I mean I think you know it just it does show that the only thing that the Israeli military is really skilled at doing is killing civilians mm-hmm. um, and um yeah, I mean I think there are still people in the solidarity movement who talk about the the rockets from gaza being firecrackers and i i just don't think it's true <laughs> you know i mean i think um that palestinian resistance and and and, th- and this is what what we've seen in this uh latest israeli aggression is that um that the, they've been hesitating you know this is why they've not been able to invade we've seen reports you know there was rumors deliberately circulated by the israeli army to the press that they had already they implied they already they'd already invaded last week they'd already invaded the Gaza strip whereas they they hadn't at all and it was just it, disinformation. That was, that was a yeah
0: that was supposedly a ruse to try to draw hamas into uh, you know, this underground tunnel network uh, that the Israelis say exists near the borders and then to try and bomb the tunnels and collapse them on top. But I just want to, you know, say, if I can, if yeah. I can say something, Yeah. Um, you know, I don't think it's the goal of Hamas to kill Israelis, you know, that's the, the, the propaganda element of, of Israel. Um, and the Western media. It is the goal of Israel to kill Palestinians and they do it very effectively. I think it's it's Israel's goal to kill as many Palestinians as they can get away with. In other words, to make it look as if they're not trying to kill Palestinians while killing them uh, in order to exact this high price on Palestinians. But look at what um, Palestinian resistance groups have done this time around Uh, You know, last time in 2014 it was a big deal when um, Israel was forced to shut down Ben Gurion airport like for a few hours or for a day. It's been shut down for a week now, you know, it's been shut down since the beginning world airlines have cancelled their flights, and it may be the it may be because of the pandemic that you know. That's less shocking than it would have other be, otherwise been because we're so used to you know international travel being shut down now in a way we weren't in 2014. But nonetheless, this came at a time when you know Israel was celebrating its vaccination campaign and re-emerging and reopening international travel and business, and it's been shut down. And that costs you know an advanced economy like Israel a massive amount, I, you know, I don't know what these are based on, but I've seen reports saying, you know, it's costing Israel a billion dollars a day. That doesn't seem uh, unreasonable to me when you, you think of an economy like Israel's. And the other thing I, I just wanted to uh, point to in response to, to, to John's observations, which I find always so fascinating and insightful is that I think Israel's hubris And, you know, with this kind of triumphalist uh, feeling that the Palestinian cause is dead was that they could accelerate the ethnic cleansing of Jerusalem and Sheikh Jarrah and Silwan and the attacks on the Al-Aqsa Mosque with total impunity because in the Israeli mind, uh, Jerusalem, the Palestinians in Jerusalem were isolated. That was 200,000 people who could do nothing against the Israeli state. Um, They were cut off from the West Bank, they're cut off from Gaza, they're cut off from anyone else. And so it was a major Israeli strategic miscalculation to think that the resistance in Gaza would not dare to respond from Gaza to Israel's actions in Jerusalem. And I I cannot emphasize enough how that also changes the equation. Uh, Israel will now have to consider that whatever it does to Palestinians anywhere could result in, you know, 6 million Israelis being in bomb shelters for a week, at least.
2: Yeah. Yeah, John, what's the significance also of um, the concurrent um, resumption of activities that were announced by some of the West Bank uh, military factions, um, factions that had been dormant for years, especially as as the PA had worked in conjunction with Israel to you know, quash any sort of resistance activities.
3: Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting development. Like when we're talking ceasefires, can there, can Hamas agree to a ceasefire while Islamic Jihad and the Al-Aqsa martyrs brigades are in gunfights in the West bank or more to the point, the guns came out in the West bank in the last two days because Israel started killing people with live ammunition. Um, And so those are, yeah, those are considerations that go into any ceasefire now and, The legitimacy of the resistance is what will hold a ceasefire for Palestinians, you know, in the the way that uh, Israeli commentators can't understand why Abbas couldn't just secure Jerusalem, right? You have to have somebody who's got legitimacy on the ground in the population in question to hand out um, orders like a ceasefire in the middle of a war where your families are being massacred. Just one thing about the rockets the the rockets are not um, the rockets are a product of the environment right they ghettoed they walled off these people in a ghetto that they can't get out they don't give them any kind of pass system to get in and out basically at all um, making standoff weaponry was going to be obviously something that they would do it's not necessarily that it's a tactic that um, you know that you would pick in any situation. But to have it in the Gaza Strip just makes perfect logical sense. And that's where the question of the West Bank resistance comes in because we haven't seen yet uh, resistance on this level, armed struggle, popular protest on this level in the West Bank and since they walled off the West Bank. So it's not entirely clear to me how the in, the like next intifada in the West Bank unfolds when people are in, uh, like, what, 16 mini ghettos, mini Gazas around the West Bank? Um, Is that fighting going to be through the PA? Is Israel going to come into the West Bank ghettos to fight? There's a lot of questions that are questions that the Israelis don't want to answer. And that's the same thing I would say about the ground invasion. Ask an Israeli soldier who fought in 2014 if he wants to be at the front of the line to go into Gaza. They have... Like a conscripted army, right? They're calling up reserves. They're saying one of their original bluster was they're calling up reserves, 9,000 reserves. People who are school teachers from Monday to Friday, that's who they're calling up. Are those people going to want to be the first to go into Gaza? Like, there are strategic things that have changed for the Israeli army. Is the Israeli army going to go into Lebanon? I mean, the same thing happened in Lebanon in 2006. They tried a ground invasion. They came up the hill and were stopped in their tracks, turned around, went back down, and then they, if you'll remember, shelled and cluster bombed all those areas that they couldn't go in on the ground to. So there's there's history with this. There's always history with this.
0: Mm-hmm. And remember, just uh, was, uh, I think, yesterday as we as we're speaking, um, Netanyahu summoned all the foreign ambassadors to an auditorium um, in order to justify uh, this massacre that's going on in Gaza. And he, he actually said, you know, uh, there's two strategies with Gaza. One is deterrence, which is what we're doing now, which, you know, means kill men, women, and children until Palestinians, until the natives get it into their heads that there's no point resisting and the other is conqu- conquering Gaza. And, he's, and he said, that's not off the table. So that was reported as you know, a threat to uh, launch a ground invasion. And, but to me, that came off precisely, as you said, John, as bluster and desperation because Israel is unable to achieve uh, what it, it, it wants to achieve, which is you know, the defeat and submission of the, the Palestinians. Through this this bombardment, and earlier when Israel had threatened a ground invasion or it made uh, you know motions towards a ground invasion, like moving troops around Gaza or or uh, authorizing the call up of reserves, um, the Qassam brigades actually made a statement, and I think Sarai al Quds, the Islamic Jihad's uh, uh, military wing, made a similar statement saying, you know, come on, do it. Uh, I think Qassam said you invading Gaza is our shortest route to victory. And uh, I, I think it's very significant that there are no serious demands in Israel, even from the far right. Yeah, of course, there are the far, far right people who say flatten Gaza, level Gaza, but there are really no credible calls from anyone in Israel for a ground operation in Gaza.
3: There would be a mutiny. The army is not going in and fighting in a dense urban environment that has got a subway system of tunnels under it. And I just I don't see it. I mean, we could always be proven wrong within an hour of making these kind of statements, but I don't see I don't see a ground invasion as a possibility. And I mean, I think we can all hope for not having a ground invasion, as it's a very costly thing. But um, yeah, it, it the strategic dynamic has changed in the Israel-Palestine conflict and it's changed in the Israel-Hezbollah conflict. And there's, those are factors that are real on the ground um, that just don't really get captured by the Twitter debates or the New York Times republishing Israeli sources. There's a dynamic around Israel that Israel knows.
0: And if you consider the, uh, extent of the disruption to Israel uh, you know just uh, there have been reports in the Israeli media that you know the psychological helplines are like can't cope with the demand and you know there was a, a member of the Knesset who said we have to provide emergency funding for psychological help because the Israeli population is collectively having a nervous breakdown from you know what they're going through which is you know I'm, I'm not going to say it's not frightening for people to be in this situation. It's of course a tiny fraction of what Palestinians in Gaza are put through all the time. Not, not even just now when the heavy bombing is going. But um, I think Israelis know that what they're facing now from Gaza is still a fraction of what would happen in a full-scale, wall, full-scale uh, conflict with Hezbollah.
3: Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Or a full-scale conflict with Hamas. I mean, they've been developing for seven years since the last one, Islamic Jihad and Hamas and the Joint Operations Room. I mean, there's all kinds of capabilities that we know they have that we haven't seen as much of. We know that they have drones, suicide drones capable. Um, They have autonomous submarines that we know about. They have the entire Frogman unit that we haven't heard anything about, in part because Israel's left their bases all around They've left them open. They used to just sit like a massive parking lot. Outside of Gaza used to look like a used car parking lot for tanks. They would all muster there. And now they're not there at all. And the footage from the first day when they were doing all of the things that they normally do when one a, a, of a these flare ups starts, the first thing you see in Israel is truck after truck, flatbed truck carrying tanks down to the border. Well, the tank didn't even get unlo- unloaded off the truck and it got hit by a cornet. The pictures of it on the back of the truck smoking. And that was the last of their input of the normally dozens and dozens of tanks that they put in on the ground. There's lots of little clues that Israel's offering that um, that they don't want the conflict. And where, you know, the poking of the holes in the tunnels that they've been doing, the nature of a tunnel is that it it has many entrances all through it. That's the potency of the tunnel. It's not just a straight line. And so when you poke a spike on the border and you cut through a tunnel that somebody has dug with a hand trowel at great uh, personal <laughs> effect, um, those, those tunnels, uh, you can't, those tunnels can be rebuilt around the spike that goes in and interrupts it quite easily by just detour, like just doing a little detour around it. And you keep the exact, the, the Israelis are calling it a metro. In Canada, we call it a subway. But you're talking about a massive system under the ground, pinpricking one part of that system isn't ruining the system. And maybe the border ability for them to come out and grab soldiers on the border is limited. But a ground war, the tunnels are under the entire ground war. I just don't see it happening.
0: I I can uh, confirm from my own experience when I went to Gaza in 2013, the only time I've uh, been able to go to Gaza, uh, we were able to go and visit uh, tunnels on the Rafah border. Now, these were commercial tunnels, they weren't military tunnels, obviously, but we still required, you know, these are not just open for anyone to go to. And we weren't allowed to take pictures. I was with other journalists and, and people in Gaza. And it was incredible because we were taken to one of the large tunnels that was like, you have to imagine a very uh, wide a vertical circular shaft with a platform, a lift platform. And at the ground level, you go onto the platform and this this is a circular platform that you could park two cars on side by side. And then it was like incredibly engineered. There was like rails down the vertical shaft of the tunnel. And then, you know, they pressed a button. There was a warning horn so that, you know, a safety horn so that people would be away from the edges where the moving parts are. And then we went down on this platform. I don't know how exactly how far we went down, but when you looked up, like the sky was just a little hole And then there was a horizontal tunnel which would have been going straight through to Egypt. And that horizontal tunnel was uh, just big enough to drive a car through. You know, it's not like a traffic tunnel size, but you could drive a car through it. And it had um, lighting all the way and it had bracing. So, you know, I think there was... um, steel steel in that particular tunnel there was like steel bracing and there was electricity running across across along it with lighting we walked a certain distance into it obviously not all the way to egypt but it was astounding if you had told me about this you know i'd heard stories about it but i thought these are sort of fanciful stories uh i would not have entirely believed it unless i'd seen it with my own eyes it was incredible And, but that was a commercial tunnel. Now you have to imagine what is under the whole Gaza Strip and deep under the whole uh, Gaza Strip. In other words, you know, I'm not a military strategist but I can't imagine that you would put your most valuable assets uh, right at the edge of the Gaza Strip. You're gonna put that stuff, uh, you know, deep, deep under Gaza and deep into Gaza. But what it told me, what, what, it, what I can infer from that is that there is a capability in Gaza to build very significant underground uh, structures and assets that Israel will never be able to reach.
3: And it's true. And that's what they're doing. And they, I mean, they got it from Hezbollah in 2006 that did that too. It was not just that they had tunnels to access Israeli troops, it's that they had tunnels to protect their own troops, that they had uh, barracks underneath there. So troops could never come didn't have to come up. Um, they have meeting rooms. And um, it, it, it's the, the capacity and the, the directions and the understanding of the landscape from underneath it just turns everything that Israel thought that it was doing with its like geospatial stuff, just turns it on its head, right? They know where every building is. They know where every floor is. But there's this thing underneath the ground that I just, it prevents. I just think it prevents like when they're training. Can you imagine training for those tunnel operations? Like, it's your turn. Like, you go down, check and see if where it ends. Like, it's, it's, there's no good way of doing it. And on the other hand, the Palestinians have the subway map; they know where they can go to access everything at any moment when any attack comes in on the border. I just think that the strategic calculus has changed too much, and yeah, and like what you were saying about the um, about the summer holidays, Ali is super important because it's it's very important for Israel to have this tourism industry. It's very important for for Israel to have this be on. You know, to to not be interrupted, and so what they did was they built. They after the two thousand fourteen war, where they couldn't have planes land, they've been working on their airport at Elat to make it wow. an international airport, so that you won't interrupt the flow. So then they did that, and when whatever day it was last week, Thursday or whatever, when the Israelis said that they were not flying planes, they were going to send them instead to Elat. Um, Qassam pulled out their longest range rocket, fired a 250 kilometer rocket that puts a lot in range that was there, you know, like there didn't, they didn't show at the beginning of the war, like, Oh, look at all the tools that we have. You know, the idea that we're hearing in the Israeli media that like, Oh, they knocked out entire, uh, you know, cornet uh, anti-tank missile units or that they're shutting down borders. There's, there's very little evidence of that.
1: It's very crude I, military disinformation, I think, and I think it it's is. getting more, more and more desperate. Really. And that that airport, by
0: the way, I I've not been to to it, but actually, when you drive down, as I did uh, in was in twenty nineteen, uh, down to Aqaba from Amman uh, in Jordan, down the Dead Sea Road, you you pass that airport because it's just on the other side of the border. And it, it looks like a terrible place to have an airport because on one side, you know, so on the west side are high mountains, you know, there's, the, there's high mountains. Israel only has a narrow strip of flat land between the mountains and the Jordanian border. So on one side, you have these high mountains and on the other side, you have the Jordanian border. So when you're driving down the road in Jordan, you're you're just looking across at the Israeli airport and they've built these very high walls around the airport. It's very strange to think that of an airport, like you probably want an airport to be unobstructed, um, (laughs) but there are these very high walls around the airport uh, to I I, I assume to kind of present, to to protect it from missile attacks or whatever. So um, it seems very, and I think it's named after, isn't it named after the Israeli astronaut who, uh, I have to check that, but I think it's named after the Israeli astronaut who died on the uh, Columbia, the space shuttle. But um, yeah, so it just doesn't seem very ideal to have the airport there, nor really a viable alternative uh, to um, you know, ben Gurion airport. And then of course, if they tried to put one in the North, then, you know, you're, you're well within the range of, of Lebanon. So, um, I think, I think, you know, I, I think it's fascinating to, you know, we're not really used to thinking about Israel as, as I think for many years, Israel did convince people that it is invincible and invulnerable and, uh, what these, uh, a conflagration show us is is really it shows kind of the weaknesses and and the resistance in Gaza have nothing but time to study Israel's weaknesses
1: yeah I think we are really seeing that with with the political response as well and the media response it is uh sort of a new sense of desperation in the tone like as as we're filming this as we were filming this earlier uh Gilad Erdan the uh, Israeli ambassador to the United States and the UN was speaking to the UN General Assembly, and uh, I, 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 I'm going to have to, you know, see what he said exactly. But I could see that he was holding up. Uh, they were doing their usual trick of holding up the, you know, the placards and the illustrations in the UN, and he was holding up. Um, he was trying. First of all, he was sh- showing up a quote from the Hamas's charter. Um, And secondly, then he was showing a picture from inside what what looked to me uh, to be a picture from inside the Al-Aqsa Mosque, uh, you know, and he was trying to say, essentially, he was trying to say, you know, these were Palestinian rioters and uh, something along those sort of lines and to try and justify um, Israel's attacks on the Al-Aqsa Mosque on worshippers during the holy month of Ramadan. Um, And I'm just seeing like, I, I mean... This is, I mean, this is a point for both John and Ali to uh, address. Um, like, have you seen this sort of sense of desperateness from the Israeli politicians and Israeli propagandists, where they're sort of saying, like, why don't you believe us? You know, mm-hmm. I, I saw also I saw a tweet, um, I think it was yesterday or the day before, from one of the official Israeli accounts. I think it was the Israeli Army account, um, where it was putting uh, a video. Um, uh, uh, and talking about Hamas and saying, you know, the usual sort of thing. that just this terrorist organization and so forth. And the uh, the caption at the beginning said, if you don't believe us, then believe Hamas when they say this. So there's this <laughs> real sense of like, no one's listening to us. Have you seen yeah. that too?
0: I wow. saw that and, and that struck me exactly the same way. Um, but also another thing with the, you know, of course, You know, social media is important and you know it's it is mass media now, so I I don't think we can dismiss it, but. um, It it was interesting people were pointing out the contrast between the official at Israel Twitter account in Arabic and the the one in English. Uh, The one in Arabic tweeted this just horrific thing they tweeted a verse from the Quran. Uh, over a picture of, you know, a building in Gaza exploding to kind of taunt, uh, you know, it was talking about the divine vengeance. Uh, and it was, it was really to taunt Palestinians as they were killing them and to incite uh, religious conflict and, and war, because I think Israel thinks they benefit from this being seen as a religious war. Whereas the uh, English account was tweeting like, Guys, it's been a tough week for us, but we love you. Thank you for all the support with lots of emojis. So I can't remember who it was on Twitter who pointed out the contrast that there's like this, this, you know, religious fanaticism on one account and then tweeting like an, a hurt teenager on the other account. And you just get the sense that Israel is is desperate, is, is just throwing everything out there and seeing what sticks, you know. Um, and... I do sense a change that this that the that the demonizing propaganda that Israel relied on for so, so long, especially in the years right after 9-11, mm-hmm. that you could reliably demonize Muslims. All you had to do is say, look, their name is Islamic Jihad. What more do you need to know about them? And people would immediately be on Israel's side, but that's not working anymore. And um, for a, you know, f- f- given that ultimately, you know, as I point out, uh, South Africa, apartheid South Africa was never militarily defeated. You know, it always uh, retained immense military uh, domination over the ANC or over the black population. It could have massacred them at will. And it did massacre them on, on many occasions but it lost the legitimacy war, it lost the propaganda war. And once the regime loses any legitimacy, then all the weapons in the world will really not help you. And I really think that that is um, the crisis Israel is in. you know, As John is pointing out, tanks are of no use in a situation like this. You, you know, you can have all the tanks in the world. It doesn't help you in a, uh, battle for international legitimacy and in fact it hurts you if you're seen as being this you know military occupier and colonizer that's just blasting the indigenous people it it's actually turns out to be uh worse so it's hard to predict uh obviously we can't we don't have a crystal ball but what we see i think in this past 10 days is really an intensification and confirmation of all of these trends we've been talking about that are not new but have been happening for years and i think now you know possibly reaching a tipping point i I do think that as a result of this like bds is going to become mainstream in a way that it hasn't before Um, and i think that you know mainstream politicians are going to start and and public figures and celebrities and so on, are going to start endorsing boycott, uh, where they would not have dared to do so, uh, you know, a few months ago. I I don't know if that's uh, in your field of analysis, uh, John, but I'd love to hear what you think about that, too.
3: Well, I mean, I think there's a lot of interesting things about the ceasefire, because the 2014 ceasefire negotiations were um, invalidated by Israel. So it'll be interesting to see with new leadership in Hamas and this connection with the Kassam Brigades in the top leadership positions, how the blockade will factor into these negotiations. Because at this point, with the West Bank on fire, 48 possibly rising up, Israel may not be the one to decide how this ceasefire goes. And it was interesting, I think, to look, to look to see towards the way that Hamas deals with the blockade, because when we say nothing changes from these wars, a lot could change from these wars with very, you know, we don't have to have a, a whole political overthrow to have very significant improvements on life in Gaza and the blockade. And I, I'm, I'm curious to see how the 2014 failure to do that, uh, the failure to live up to that by Israel will color, um, someone like Yahya Sinwar, who's spent, you know, decades in Israeli jails, you know, he said he had an interesting quote about the, um, the great marches from a couple years ago. And he said they were like, um, when we were in prison, we did a hunger strike, the hunger strike forced the Israelis to negotiate. That was the point of the hunger strike to to force a negotiation. He said during the great return marches, when people were walking to the lines and, and, uh, and getting massacred, he said, this is what you're seeing here is, is a people ca- calling for negotiations, like a people, this is how we do it, resisting with dignity, with honor, calling for negotiations. So it, it is a different way that they see it. And it's something that's definitely not going to be in our newspapers a lot, but it, I think it'll be an important factor on the ground because um, you have people involved to now really have fought these struggles, you know, not that the previous leadership didn't, of course they did, but from Israeli jail for your whole life, you know, Sinwar said that they they thought the jail was our graveyard, but it was our academy. You now, this is the guy who's coming out. I, I I think that the way he handles the ceasefire negotiations are going to be very, very interesting. And normally, I would make jokes about ceasefires, about how they last for two days, and then we'll go another UN meeting and we're gonna right, but it's possible that that there's a new day in Gaza.
0: I certainly hope so for yeah. the people
3: there. Yeah,
2: no kidding. Um, we only have and the blockade.
3: Minutes. I mean, that needs yeah. to be that that needs to be. It's almost like it's gone on so long. People forget that that is a thing that is, you know, on top of mind for everybody, especially when we see all of these things that are being destroyed, like the civilian infrastructure, the civil infrastructure, the libraries, the hospitals, the schools, the blockade has to end. It, it ha- ha- what has to come out of this is, the, is an end to the blockade.
2: I think that's a good place to leave it. Uh, John Elmer, you're my colleague, co-host at The Brief Podcast, briefpodcast.com. Um, and Ali Abunima, you are our executive director at the Electronic Intifada. Um, Asa Winstanley, my co-host. Thank you all for being with us today on the Electronic Intifada
0: podcast.
3: Thank you. Thanks, Nora. Thank you.
1: Thanks, Ali. Thanks, Asa. Thanks for watching this video. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel, hit like, leave a comment, These engagements help us with the YouTube algorithm and it helps us to get around Silicon Valley censorship as much as possible. It does make a difference. You can also support our journalism by going to electronicintifada.net and clicking on donate now. Thank you.